The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Um, so, just real quick over the some of the um, resources that I've put in the bibliography, there's a couple of things that I'm going to draw your attention to. There's an appendix that I've included that we're going to talk about, I'm going to just briefly talk about tonight, but is there for you to have. And I'll go over it in just a little bit. Uh, and then on the bibliography, there's a couple of other uh, things that are, you know, I, I put these on, on here uh, just so you know where this information comes from. So it's kind of full disclosure, I guess. But then also there might be some on here that might pique your interest, maybe. And you might uh, think, hey, I, I might want to get something like that. Um, so the ones in bold are the ones that I've used tonight, um, but, but all of them have, I've consulted at various times. Um, the, the one that I, two that I added, um, one is Mark Dever and Graham Goldsworthy, um, the message of Zechariah, does God give second chances, and the message of the Old Testament promises made. That, that book is really big, and basically what it is, is uh, it is a sermon essentially a sermon manuscript on each book in the Old Testament. So it kind of gives an overview from like a big, you know, kind of high-level overview. He's got one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. So you can do that, and you can go get the book, or if you go online to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, their website, you can listen to the sermons that those came from. So you can just go there and search for the sermons, and you can listen to those sermons instead. Either way, um, they'll be helpful. And then Ian Duguid is here. It looks like Duguid, uh, but it's Duguid. Um, has a commentary on Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We're going to be doing Zechariah tonight. And that commentary is really pretty accessible. It's, it's, um, it's kind of applicational and is written at a level that, you know, is pretty accessible. It's not like tons of Hebrew words and things like that are in there and things. So it's really pretty good, and there's, there's a section on application that he's got in, in each one, in each chapter. Reads a little bit more like a book than it does like a, um, like a commentary. So if you're looking for a commentary for Zechariah, or with some of the things that we uncovered tonight, you're like, I don't know what that was talking about, I need a better explanation, uh, <laughs> then, then uh, that might be a good, a good resource for you. Um, okay, we have been talking about the people coming out of the exile. They've been in Babylon. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah has been exiled into Babylon and been held under ca- in captivity, and then has recently, because of the work of Cyrus, uh, been released, and Cyrus has conquered Babylon and then released the slaves, and so the Jews have, uh, some of them have gone back home. They went home in around 538, 539, somewhere in that area. They were released, and they started heading back home, some of them. They started initially with the building of the temple by laying its foundations and kind of putting some, some stuff there so that they could do some sacrifices. And then they were met, as we saw last week, with a lot of uh, resistance. And so um, just to re- recap, the seventh month is when they started building the, the foundation of the temple. They were able to keep the Feast of Sa- Tabernacles, and they were excited about that. But then once the Samaritans got involved, they came in and they said, you know, we would can we help? We'd love to help. And the Jews weren't too keen on the Samaritans for a number of reasons. Remember, the Samaritans were a a sort of a mixed race, not sort of a mixed race, they were a mixed race. Um, 
the Assyrians had not only taken the northern kingdom in captivity, but then they had put uh, people from other nations in the land and had produced children with the Jews that remained at home. So there were two, there were two things going on there. One is that they stayed home, they didn't go into exile, and they intermarried with Assyrians and with people from other nations. So that was a huge problem. But then another big problem, which led to the reasons why in the New Testament we see the Jews having so much friction with the Samaritans, is this right here. The Samaritans came up, asked if they could help. The Jews said, no thanks, we got it. The Samaritans went away and said, well, okay then, and turned them over to the authorities and uh, basically entrenched them in 16 years of bureaucracy that forestalled the the further building of the temple. And so the Jews went home and, uh, well, stayed there and started building their homes and started building their society and kind of left the temple with what it it was. And so that eventually onto the scene comes Haggai, comes uh, Zechariah, and comes several others to say, the time is now. You've got to move and actually got to resume building this, this temple. So in about 520 B.C., the prophet Haggai uh, starts to urge the people of what they've got to do. They've got to undertake the building of the, of the temple without further ado. And so as the building begins to take shape, it, it, they get past the kind of the bureaucratic nightmare. Um, it was obvious while they were building it, you know, it's never going to match Solomon's temple. And the people that were there before that saw, that saw Solomon's temple remember what splendor it was. And so they're weeping over the temple. And the new people are like, hey, we got four walls. You know, it's like, all right, you know, we're starting to get something to take shape here. And, uh, and, and, but the people of old remembered what it was like, and it's obviously very sad. But Haggai is there to remind them, the prophet is there to remind them that what really matters is that the temple be filled with the glory of God. And, and that, in the end, Unless God actually fills this temple, and unless God is actually here amongst us, then you know it doesn't matter how beautiful it is or what kind of splendor it really has. Remember, God was happy to go around in a tent for a long time through the wilderness, and that was just fine. Um, and so, but here in in whether it's Solomon's temple or some other building. What really matters is that God's presence uh, be there with them. So we have not yet finished the temple just yet. So there are a couple of other prophets coming along that are going to speak into the situation. And one of those is the prophet Zechariah. I want to warn you <laughs> before we get into tonight. Zechariah is tough. All right. Zechariah is a, is a tough, tough book to read. It's a difficult book to understand, and the main reason is because if you've ever tried to read Revelation, uh, you know when you read the book of Revelation how many images fill the book, and you spend a lot of your time going, what are you talking about? You know, and then asking at the end, well, why didn't he just say it like that, right? Why didn't he just say it straightforward? Um, Zechariah is a really challenging book, and so what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to spend probably at least this week and at least next week on Zechariah as we kind of just look at some of the passages, 
Tonight, we're going to focus mainly on chapters 3 and 4 of Zechariah, just to kind of get a feel of what he's saying and, the, and kind of a big point that's being made. And if tonight, we can just really kind of tackle the purpose of Zechariah, so you can kind of put that book, the second to last book in the Old Testament, if you can just put it where it belongs in your mind and go, okay, this is the scenario that Zechariah is in, this is kind of what he's talking about in general, that will help as, as you read the, that book, because it, it's, otherwise it's very, very difficult to understand as you get involved in the images. Here's what I will say, though. If you can understand that, and you can get the big picture of what Zechariah is saying, then some of those prophecies become easier to understand. All right? So, uh, we're going to do, I'm going to tr- attempt to do that tonight, and we'll see how good it is. Okay? <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, two months. So, that's, that's where we're at. Two months after Haggai's first prophecy. Hang on. I, I saw it. I literally saw it skip on me right there. Hang on. Got it? It's up there. Okay, perfect. Two months after Haggai's first oracle, the prophet Zechariah called for repentance. So Zechariah and Haggai are contemporaries. They're coming along at the same time, and their agenda is to get the children of Israel to build this temple and to finish it, to actually get it going Get the walls built up and, and get the whole thing done, okay? They'll eventually do that, but, but they're, they're trying to get them to work on it. So the, what Zechariah is calling for right at the beginning of the book is repentance. And he says, you know, the work on the temple um, was obviously uh, underway uh, because of Haggai's preaching, as we saw last week. But the, the construction of the, the actual temple is not going to be good enough. Zechariah's main point is, if you, you can build a building, and that's great, but if your heart is not repentant to the Lord, what does it matter? You can, if you go there and you attend worship service every week, what good is that if you are not actually a repentant person? That, repentant people are people that belong to the Lord. So if you're filling this temple with people who don't belong to the Lord because they don't repent, then what good is, is this temple? It, 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 it'll just be torn down by some other nation, right? So you can kind of get this sense. If you look at Zechariah uh, 1, 2 to 6, you'll see as he urges them to get into covenant relationship, he says this, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So, look, hey, if you don't repent, it's just going to be the same thing over and over, and I'm going to keep disciplining you. So, 
Zechariah's main, he's kind of tackling the spiritual side of this and going, you, you've got to come to repentance. So after that, Zechariah, so three months later, after that first little call to repentance, Darius is still in his second year. So we're looking at uh, February. We had, we're pretty sure it's about February. We're, get, we're given the month um, of 519 B.C. So they finished the temple in 515. So this is four years before the temple's finished. Zechariah starts getting his first series of visions. And this, this book, as we're going to see in just a minute, uh, has starts, opens with eight visions of Zechariah. And they are super weird. They're out there, all right, as far as like, you know, prophetic imagery. And, and, and these oracles that he gets are presented to us in what we would call apocalyptic fashion. And that means that the language in the prophecy, in the oracle, is going to be very poetic. Meaning, when you see, the, the word doesn't necessarily mean what it says it means, right? <laughs> what, it, what it is on the surface. It takes some digging to understand what it is that he's saying. And it also takes a good bit of knowledge of the rest of the Old Testament to kind of help fill in what that image really means and where it comes from. And we're going to see one of those tonight, especially when it comes to um, talking about the king. So he's, he's going to write this in apocalyptic imagery, so we're, we're going to have to really stretch our brains to understand it. But uh, these are eight oracles that Zechariah is presented with. And in these eight different visions um, of Zechariah, they come in chapters 1 to 6, we see that ultimate realities are not uh, to be what appears to what it appears on the surface. Uh, on the surface, at the very beginning of the book, it seems as though everything is at peace, and, and we'll see some of that next week. But um, God sends out His uh, uh, angels on horseback, uh, which may sound familiar if you're familiar with the Book of Revelation, horses, people on on red horses and black horses and things. And they go patrol the earth. And when they go patrol the earth, uh, they find everything is at peace. But it's not at peace in a good way. The, the reason that the earth is at peace is because uh, the forces of evil have eff effectively felt like they conquered the world and God is not going to do anything about it. So that's how the book of Zechariah opens, is you've got the angel of the Lord. Again, we're going to talk about him next week. But the angel of the Lord is standing there with his army and he sends his, his army out to patrol the earth, and they say, look, everything's at peace. But it's because all of the evil people have wrestled control away from Israel. Israel is nothing at this point. And uh, effectively, what that means is, or what Israel thinks that means is, God does not have control of this. And because the evil people now have control, they, they're, they're good. They're coasting. And they would be, it, it, it would be tumultuous, or they would be at war if God was in control, and they would try to overthrow him. But because he's not, they feel okay. And that's kind of the scene that it opens up with at the very beginning of the book. So the visions of Zechariah, though, actually reveal a, a deeper reality. And as we go through chapters 1 to 6, what we find is that that it's in spite of what it looks like, all the evil people have control over the world, in spite of what it appears to be, God actually sees all, 
controls all, and is in the process of bringing about all of His perfect plans for His people. So, this is, um, if, we can, if you can wrap your mind around the actual message of Zechariah, it's incredibly encouraging. And I will tell you this, when we get in the back half of Zechariah, which will probably be two weeks from now, I'd imagine, um, you, will, you will see so many quotations that the New Testament picks up on, pulls straight from Zechariah. In fact, you'll see one tonight that maybe you didn't even know came from Zechariah that is straight into the New Testament. And, and we get into the New Testament, we start reading some of these quotations, and, it, and they're hard to understand but when you actually go back into the book of Zechariah, you actually start to see what, what is being meant by them. So, um, God is he's reassuring His people that, that, hey, in spite of what it looks like, I'm still on the throne here. That no one else has taken control over the situation. It's still me. I'm still bringing all of this about. Um, so the book, overall, is really about God's plan to restore Israel from spiritual exile through the building of the temple. So the eight visions in the first half of the book are designed to present this plan in somewhat complex images that require thought to interpret. So um, this is what what I think is a, a huge piece that you have to kind of fix in your mind is that one of the reasons God wants His people to build the temple is so that they understand their biggest need is to have God among them. Do you understand that? Your biggest need is to have God among you. That you might be able to enter into the presence of God. It's the same reason when we go back into the Old Testament why Moses was called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai. And the first thing that they, they address when they get there to the Mount, Mount Sinai is you need law, you need a tent, and I've provided people to help you build it. And it seems so weird, right? Here's, we're out of Egypt. We just co- conquered the biggest nation in the world. God just did. He, he just, they turned loose of their servants and they gave them money to leave. They actually saw them leave. And then on the way out, God parts the Red Sea and then drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And you would think like, okay, this is a moment for celebration. Look at what all God has accomplished. Now let's get going into this promised land. And no, there's like a year of pause where God says, Right here, you need a law to obey and you need a tent to carry me with you because your biggest need is to be in my presence. And the only way you can do that is through adherence to the law. And so, uh, again, he's bringing along these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to remind the people, look, if you don't have me among you, you are in worse than dire straits. You are in a, a terrible predicament, more so than you even know, more so than you even realize. So, um, so he really wants them to, they've gotten out of exile, but now he wants them out of spiritual exile, out of uh, their um, separation from God. So these visions um, are structured in such a way 
so that the beginning vision and the end vision are parallel to one another. And the second vision and the seventh vision are parallel to one another. And the third vision and the sixth vision are parallel to one another. And so that leaves visions four and five to serve as the main point of the, this section of eight visions. Okay, So if you look in your handout, I've got that kind of structured for you at least a little bit. And so you can see... Um, in both, like, so as an example, in both uh, the first and last vision, both of those visions present four horses that go out through the earth and then return with a report of peace. But in the first vision, the peace that exists is before the Lord judges the nations. And the, the peace that exists in the, it, after, in the end, is after the Messiah comes. So, th- it's a... He's kind of trying to, to demonstrate uh, the, the pivotal point in the middle where everything changes. Is there in visions 4 and 5, which is uh, right there in chapters 3 and 4. I wish it was chapters 4 and 5 because that would make that be a whole lot easier, but it's not, so get over it. Uh, so, but in chapters 3 and 4 are visions 4 and 5, and that's where everything begins to change. That's where the, the change takes place. And once the change happens... Then all of a sudden, sin begins to be dealt with, wicked nations begin to be punished, and then the peace that exists on the back end of that is after God's deliverance of the people of Israel. And so what we're going to see tonight is where that deliverance occurs and how it occurs. And that's what I think maybe makes this so hard. So let's just, let's give this a shot. We're going to look at some of these passages. You can look uh, in your packet at chapter 3, 1 to 10, or you can look in your Bible chapter 3, 1 to 10. Uh, if you don't have an ESV, I would recommend don't make it any harder on yourself than it has to be. Just stick with the ESV, which is you've got printed in front of you. I'm speaking to Shannon right now. Uh, so, <laughs> All right. um, so we're going to look at this passage here, and I want to just, if we can, uh, I'm going to try to draw on this if I, if I can, if it makes it any better. Um, so it says, then he showed me, so this is Zechariah having a vision. Then he showed me uh, Joshua the high priest. All right, what is his name? It's very easy questions, all right? I'm not going to make them any harder than they have to be. His name is Joshua, and what is his job? He is the high priest, okay? The high priest at this time's name is what? Okay. What was Joshua's role? He was the high priest, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, these are easy questions. These are not in the heart. Um, he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. T- two things real quick. Who is accusing him? Satan. Now, we've got a capital S here, so we know it is a personal name, but it's a title. The, the word Satan is a title. It's not really a name so much as it is a title. And do you know what it means? Accuser. So literally, if you were to read the Hebrew, this is a, Satan is an untranslated word. That is a Hebrew word. You know a Hebrew word. The word is Satan. So Satan was standing there, and he was Sataning him. That is, he was there to accuse him, to Satan him. Okay, 
And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Okay, um, I'm not going to deal with all of this, but if you can wrap your mind around Satan's role and function, it will help you not just understand the Old Testament, but also help you understand the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Um, Satan's role is a prosecuting attorney. That's, that's his job. He is there to accuse everyone. So he is standing here with Joshua, the high priest. What was his name? Joshua. Yeah, yeah. And what was his role? He was the high priest. Right. So what is that? He's still, he's still the high priest. Um, uh, so Satan is standing there looking at Joshua, the high priest, and the prosecuting attorney is taking his place in court, and he's saying, well, you're not going to get this, to pick this guy, are you? This guy's not going to stand before you and give sacrifices to you for the sins of the people. Have you seen this guy? This guy is as dirty as they come. Well, look at all these sins he's committed. I can tell him what, what they are. I was there when he committed them. Perhaps he even ensnared him to commit those sins, right? So I know all too well what he's done. And so he's presenting this case against Joshua, the high priest. What was the high priest saying? That's right, Joshua. Okay. Um, and so the, the Lord says to Satan, what? What does he say? Yeah. Get out of here. Buzz off. Okay, so the judge has ruled. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So Joshua is standing before the angel. And, oh, and by the way, we have this other character here, the angel of the Lord. We're going to talk more about him next time, but uh, the angel of the Lord typically, I, I believe always in the Old Testament, refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, the one who is always there uh, communicating God's desires uh, and uh, meeting with people. But we can talk about that later. Now, Joshua is standing there before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, which Satan is all too keen to point out, right? He's got filthy garments. You can't pick this guy. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold... I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What, what was the solution to Satan's accusations? Yeah. I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay. And remember, this is a vision Zechariah is seeing. And, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel, so far so good, right? We're okay. This is not too hard. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Doesn't sound like the role of a high priest, but okay. And I will give you the right of access 
among those who are standing here. This is what Israel so desperately needs. The right of access to what? To God, the Lord. Among those who are standing here. Here now, O Joshua, the high priest. What was the high priest saying? That's right, it was Joshua. What was Joshua's job? He was high priest. Okay. Uh, you and your friends who sit before you. Who would be his friends? The nation of Israel. Maybe even more specifically, the priest, the other priesthood. Uh, for they are men who are a sign. They are men who are a sign. I think this is probably the priesthood. This is a sign. And what is it a sign of? It's a sign that I will bring, you, bring my servant the branch. Okay? Keep that in your mind. I will bring my servant the branch. The priesthood and the fact that the priesthood is gaining access to God now is a sign of something else that is to come. Okay? So here, here's... This is what makes this so challenging, and I'm trying to, we've got to help us think here, okay? Is everything that's coming to fulfillment in the here and now, he's challenging them to build a temple, right? And they're going to build it in like four years. It's going to be finished. So that is, in some ways, a fulfillment of what is being prophesied and what is being told to them. You're going to build this temple. I want you to build this temple. But the fulfillment is not only that. Okay? There is more fulfillment to come that fulfills these passages. But it's beyond what they will see with their own two eyes and what they can know at this moment. And what you have to understand is that the Lord in these visions is putting everything in somewhat cryptic language for the purpose of not disclosing the whole plan. All right? Paul even tells us this in the New Testament, that there was stuff hidden, that was hidden in plain sight. Now that we've seen it, then we go back to the Old Testament and go, well, it's right there. I mean, he just told us, by his stripes we'd be healed. But at the time, we didn't know what that, that's what that meant. Right? But now we see, it's like, literally, by his stripes, we're healed. Right? So... It's, it's hidden, it's, and, 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 it, and anytime you're reading this, these prophecies, in the day that the prophecies are written, you're going, okay, I know what that means. Yeah, of course, that's the scenario that's around me. I, I get it. But then 500 years later, you go, oh, there was, it, was, it, was, it was this deep, and I was only seeing this much of it, right? So here is this, my servant, the branch, and all of the priesthood, you, the high priest, having access to me, and the priesthood, your brothers around you, having access to me, is a sign that I'm doing something more than you can even see. And that I will bring my servant, and he just calls him the branch. That's all he calls him, the branch. It's like a name, or the branch. There it is, all right? Um, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua. What was Joshua's job? He was the high priest, that's right. Uh, I, I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. Um, so just this right here, because that every time you get to that, you'll go, what? It's got seven eyeballs on it? S- seven is, what do, we, what do we know about seven? 
number of completion, number of perfection, you can say it a number of different ways. To have seven eyes, what is that? What would that mean? You can see everything. All right? Uh, this is one way of God basically saying, I know everything's happening. All right? Eyes, when he says, I, you'll see animals in the, Old in the New Testament, even in Revelation, and even in the Old Testament, who have eyes all around. That means they can see everything, right? There's nothing that they're missing. Okay. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. All right, you, you're, you're in the New Testament era. You read that verse, and what do you think about? Crucifixion of Jesus, right? Immediately, you go to that. But that's not what they think about. Because what they're thinking about is a sacrificial system. The only, I'm telling you right now, the only category for God taking away sin from people is through sacrifice. That's the only category. God has to do this, or it can't be done. So, we gotta have a temple, we gotta have a sacrifice, and that's the only way sin can be atoned for. Well, he's just done this to the high priest, given him access. He's, he's had to, one guy has to have access, right? So he, he's, he's cleaned up his clothes, and he's given him access, and it's a sign that I'm bringing, bringing to the people. I'm coming to meet with them again, and I'm going to raise up this branch, that he says. And then he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land on a, in a single day. They're thinking, now that I have access to him, I can sacrifice to him. And now that I can sacrifice, I can make atonement for the nations, right? But you read it, you're... Basically, they're in the same room you're in, but they don't have the lights turned on, all right? Now you've got the lights turned on. You can see what color the furniture is, but they can't. They know it kind of feels like a couch, but they don't know what color it is, right? But you, you're seeing all of it. You're seeing it in 3D, okay? In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. A promise from the prophets, from many of the prophets, to come under his vine and under his fig tree, meaning... Uh, you will have peace and prosperity in the land. So, um, before, the world is at peace because the evil men rule and God has done nothing about it. Enter chapter 3, and he says, oh no, the kind of peace that's going to be had on the earth is a peace that comes when I make peace with you. When I bring you into fellowship with me, and then you have peace, then you will know what real peace is. And at that point, Every neighbor will come under his vine and under his fig tree, meaning you'll have plenty to share with everybody, right? It will be a land flowing with milk and honey, as it were. Okay. So, very simply, Zechariah 3, 1 to 10, uh, is a vision, um, which is vision 4, is about the high priest Joshua, who is symbolically covered with filth of the people, and he must be cleansed. And the the people must be uh, atoned for. Okay. All right, now we get, we look, I want to look at chapter 4. So that was about Joshua. What was his role? He was a high priest. Okay. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is wakened out of his sleep, awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, see 
And behold, a lampstand, all of gold. All right, let's remember this. He's a lampstand, all of gold. With a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. So let's remember this here. We've got lampstands and olive trees. One on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, If I did, would I have asked you? No, I didn't. He said, I said, No, my Lord. Um, then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who is Zerubbabel? Huh? The king. Um, the son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel is of the line of David. That's important. Why is that important? Messiah is going to come from the line of David? That's one reason why it's tremendously important. What's another reason of the line of David is important? There was a Davidic promise. David, tell me what the Davidic promise was. It was your namesake, so... (laughs) His line would continue. There was a promise. We saw a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. There was a promise made to David. Your line will... You always have a son on the throne. Well, here is Zerubbabel coming out of captivity in exile. They have kept meticulous records and know who the son of... David is that belongs on the throne, and lo and behold, it falls on Zerubbabel. Well, look at what the Lord's going to tell him. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is, uh, you may remember that from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. Anyway. Um, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall be bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Zerubbabel is going to build me a house. Does this sound familiar to you? If you think real hard, you'll remember in the Davidic covenant... God tells David, you won't build me a house. Your son will build me a house. Well, Solomon built him a house, didn't he? Yes. And he says, look, I'll discipline him when he sins. And then he says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, Solomon's kingdom had an end, didn't it? Zerubbabel now comes along as the son of David, going to build God a house. Will his kingdom have an end? Well, Zerubbabel is going to die. Yeah. So you can see where the promise of God is layered, right? That there are, there, are, there are hidden pieces of it that are in plain sight. They're there, and they're revealed, but they're also hidden. You can't totally understand them until it comes about. Okay. So he says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the, the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, the plumb line being the 
tool he uses for building. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. I see everything. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? There's this lampstand olive tree. I don't understand what they are. And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches? We know this word has come up before. Of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. He said, do you not know what these are? And I said, if I had, would I have asked you? No, my Lord. Okay, so vision five is about God's ongoing presence being restored to his people through the temple being rebuilt by Zerubbabel, the governor of the land who represents the renewed line of David. So, Remember, we said, look, the reason for building the temple is God's presence among you. That's what you need. And so here in vision five is Zerubbabel being presented with the task as king of finishing the temple, much like Solomon did before him. You're of the line of David, and he's being essentially anointed to do exactly that. Well, then if you look in 11 to 14... Um, which I think I have here. He asks, it's this scene where he asks about the two olive trees. And um, so at the, at the very end here, uh, he says, who are these two individuals that are depicted as two lampstands and two olive trees? Well, I think the, the best reading, and I think uh, there's wide agreement on this, is that the priest who represents the cleansing of God's people in vision 4, and the king, together, who accomplishes the purposes of God in vision 5, are together the anointed ones that are both priest and king who are going to bring about the presence of God among his people. Okay? They are, they are Zerubbabel and Joshua. What was Joshua's role? He was high priest. They are two sides of the same coin. One is going to rule God's people as king and finish the building of the temple. And the priest, the high priest, whose name is Joshua, is going to consecrate God's people. And so they can dwell in the presence of God again. Right? So they are represented as this branch these branches of an olive tree, these lampstands that are designed to represent the presence of God. Okay, so, um, but this, the, the branch that Zechariah refers to in chapter 3 clearly has multiple levels to it. It's layered. It looks like on the surface, Joshua, the high priest, is the branch. Here's, you're, you're the, here's the sign. I'm bringing my branch to you. I'm, this branch is going to bring you into fellowship with me. And here is Joshua, the high priest, remember, who is the one that's going to consecrate the people. And so he's going he's to bring his people into fellowship. So who's the branch? Well, Joshua's a good candidate, okay, at this point. 
Um, but clearly something greater than Joshua is intended by this branch. Be, uh, and we see that in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. This is, I know this is jumping forward, but this is, I think, really important. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, sounds like Joshua, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Well, who is building the temple of the Lord? Zerubbabel. What's Joshua doing building the temple of the Lord? It, it sounds like what's happening here is that Joshua has a crown on his head, and the, the symbol is that the priest and the king are becoming one office. Priest and king. And the one who unites this office and builds God a temple where God dwells amongst His people, that one's going to be called the branch. Tracking? And further, what's going to happen is he is going to have a crown on his head and at the same time be a priest. Well, how can that happen? Those are two distinct offices. One, and they're two, two different tribes. One's from the tribe of Judah and the other is from the tribe of Levi. How can they possibly be of the same line? Okay. So, what we see though when we read the rest of the prophets is that uh, Zechariah didn't just come up with this term, the branch, out of thin air. God didn't just decide, you know what I'm going to call this guy? I'm going to call him the branch. You know, just for no good reason. And you figure it out. When you read the rest of the prophets, what you come to see is that this name is likely borrowed from Jeremiah's prophecy, which foretold the day when a Messiah would come, ruling as king in priestly righteousness and kingly justice. So the branch, the lampstand, and the olive tree prefigure this person that we call Christ. Look in Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous, what is it? Branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 33, 15, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Well, here's a Levite, a priest, being declared king to bring about righteousness. Clearly that isn't the full fulfillment of the branch. Understand? It's layered. But they are going to accomplish building a temple. And the goal is to be in the presence of God again and to help Israel remember God in your midst is what you need more than anything else. Okay. Now, okay, that's all well and good, right? We're starting to see, hopefully, I hope you're starting to see the, the layers that are intended here and how in the New Testament we start to have the lights on, okay? But now we're going to jump to the book of Revelation. All right? 
So here's, people get gleeful when you just say the word revelation. Uh, You might regret that in just a second. Um, Okay, he says, then I turn, this is Revelation 1, 12 to 20. Um, So, to take the depiction a little further, uh, Jesus is going to update Zechariah's lampstand image here in Revelation 1, 12 to 20. And look at where he's going to apply it. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man. I'm going to get my little John Madden telestrator out here. Okay, what do we have? We have lampstands. Have we seen that before? We've heard this before. Who is in the midst of the lampstands? One like a son of man. Do we know who this is? Well, let's keep reading. Let's find out. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This ain't a co-worker of yours, that's for sure. All right? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who is this? This is the resurrected Christ. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are... What are the seven lampstands? What's what's the lampstand? Okay, but what is the meaning of the lampstand? What is is the lampstand? You're right, I'm just picking at you. Pretty obvious, right? He tells you right away. What are the lampstands? The churches. It gives you the key. Don't make it any harder than it has to be. Right? Where is Jesus standing when he says this? Right in the middle of them. They're just right here. What is the role of the person who stands in the middle of the lampstands? Do you know? What is it? Yeah, he's keeping the flame lit. Who, who's, who does that? What office does that? High priest. Or the priest, yeah. And, but, but he says... I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Who's the one that has the keys of everything? Not the janitor. The king. Here's one king and high priest who died and who rose and who lives forevermore and who stands in the middle of the churches keeping the flame lit. And what is the flame? What's the purpose of the flame on the lampstands? 
What is it? Okay, it's, there's, it's light, but what does it symbolize? The presence of God amongst His people. What do the people need? The presence of God amongst them. Amongst them. So, what does he do right after? This is Revelation 1. Do you remember what happens in Revelation 2 and 3? What happens? He addresses those seven churches. And what does he tell them if they don't repent? I'll put your light out. What does that mean? God's presence won't be among you. Okay? And he tells them you've got to preserve sound doctrine. You've got to preserve sound doctrine. Action, meaning we're looking at orthodoxy and orthopraxy balanced against each other. You have to do both. You have to keep sound doctrine, but you have to practice it too. You have to deny people that would persuade you to pursue sexual immorality and all kinds of other indulgences. You've got to, you've got to push them away. But the person who needs the gospel, you've got to welcome in. You can't just say, well, we've got to stay away from the world, so us four no more, shut the door. Right? You have to keep your doors open because you want people who need the gospel to hear the gospel. But the people who want to drag the sheep to hell, you got to send them away. All right? So he basically goes through seven churches and tells them exactly that. Okay. So then flash forward to chapter 11, and he says this. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These, what does these refer to? Two witnesses. These witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Have you seen olive trees and lampstands before? Back in Zechariah. Look at that. We just read that. What are the lampstands? What are they? Churches. John's already told you that. The lampstands are the churches. But now John has updated the image, has brought in another image. The olive trees. Where'd the olive trees come from? Zechariah. And I said back then, the olive tree and the lampstand and the branch was designed to connote really the, a very similar depiction of the priest king who was coming to God's people to forgive their iniquity in one day and to instill God's presence among them, to give them God's ongoing presence with them, right? Isn't that what, he, what it was? Now he says... Here are two witnesses. These are not just two witnesses. What are they? What, quali- what, what is the little adjective for the two witnesses here? Right here. My two witnesses. These are my two witnesses. Who are they witnesses of? Jesus. They're coming in and they are bearing witness. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What are the, what are the uh, lampstands doing? Where is the Lord in relation to the lampstands? 
He's standing in the middle of them. These are my two witnesses, two lampstands, two olive trees. They stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. So what are they doing? What's the role that they're playing? Prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. So we get two, two pictures here, one of Elijah and one of Moses, right? Uh, as two prophets. Um, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished, what do they finish? So what is it they're doing? They're proclaiming, right? They're prophesying, they're proclaiming, they're telling. What are they telling? Well, he says they're my two witnesses. So what are they witnessing about? About Christ. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So, taking the depiction further, Jesus is updating Zechariah's lampstand image in Revelation 12 to 20, or in Revelation 1, 12 to 20, and applying it to the churches. That's pretty clear there in, in chapter 1. And again, in Revelation 11, 3 to 7, applying it and the olive trees to the two witnesses. And the reason is because these serve as Christ's representative, carrying His ongoing presence with them wherever they go. What, what's, what's interesting is the high priest's name is Yehoshua, which in Hebrew is exactly the name of the resurrected Savior. You may not realize that, but it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. We get Jesus. It's Yehoshua, Joshua, high priest and king, resurrected from the dead. But now the extension has gone. The priest and king has come, bearing the glory and the presence of God as the physical manifestation of the temple of God walking amongst his people. That's great. That's fantastic. That's what you need. That's what we need. We need God's presence among us. But he's not here. So what did he do? When he rose from the dead, he ascended, and he sent with the people that he had consecrated, that he had taken away their sin in a single day. He sent to them his very ongoing presence. So now, where they walk is the presence of God. Well, we said the presence of God in Zechariah was represented as the branch who was coming, as a lampstand and an olive tree. Well, now the church is that same representative, the lampstand and the olive tree, that goes to the world. And what do they do when they go to the world? They prophesy and they testify about the resurrected Christ. And what is going to happen to them? What's going to happen to them? We saw it in Revelation 11. You didn't want to pay attention to it, but you saw it there. The beast rises from the bottomless pit, and what does he do? He kills him. Well, that's not how it's supposed to go. We're breathing fire. We're supposed to conquer. That's not what it says. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit makes war on them and kills them. But if you go on reading in Revelation 11, their dead bodies lie in the street, and all of a sudden, 
they get up. Uh oh! The resurrection. Wait, 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 wait. So they can kill us, but they can't kill us? It's exactly what it's saying. Here are the churches that are the witnesses of Christ, God's very ongoing presence, a fulfillment of what he was prophesying would come. And he's telling Israel, get about building the temple. What they don't know is that God's glory will not dwell in that building that is built by a man as it was once before in Solomon's day. They'll build it. It'll be built really big in the Roman days. What they don't realize is the physical manifestation of the glory of God won't dwell in their midst until Jesus walks among them. But then... Once he dies and rises from the dead, he will indwell his people who will then go out carrying on his mission in the world around him. And they represent now the physical manifestation of the glory of God wherever you go. You are a temple of the living God. When Paul says this, when John says this, when other New Testament writers say you are a temple of the living God, they're not, it's not just a throwaway line or you're just written in there for cutesy and poetry and things like this. It's deeply theological and it goes all the way through the prophets. And it's everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament. This day would come. Now we're going to see much more allusions to Christ in Zechariah, which help us to understand that's exactly what he's talking about here in chapters 3 and 4. But you, you see what's happening, what's, what's being told to Israel? Get to build in the temple not because God's glory is going to dwell in this building, but because you need to understand the most important thing in your life is to have God dwelling in your midst, which is the message that we convey to the world around us every time we preach the gospel. You need to understand the most important thing is to be reconciled to God so that you can be in His midst or that He can be in yours. And that can only happen through Christ, the branch. Questions first before comments. Possible. Go ahead. How do we know that they are, they are what? I didn't I didn't understand your question. They're not Elijah. I'm saying that the two witnesses, the two lampstands, are churches. But he gives the analogy of Elijah and Moses, the people of God who came before prophets prophesied. And the reason we know that, sorry, the water turned to blood, the uh, darkness in the sky, the, uh, yeah, darkness in the sky, those are miracles that they did. Yes. 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 Melchizedek is in the days of Abraham, uh, so he is a known commodity. Um, I, will, I would say amongst Israel, that message doesn't get driven home until the book of Hebrews, uh, who the author makes that, um, explains Jesus' high priestly office through Melchizedek. I, yeah, I, I don't see evidence of people in the Old Testament 
putting, those, putting two and two together. I see that happening in the book of Hebrews, but I don't see anybody in the Old Testament going, hey, right, like Melchizedek, you know, and, and putting that together just yet. That's one of those, uh, you know, I say, like, you know what the furniture looks like, you got the lights on and things like that. That's one of those, like, uh, bugs in the corner that you're like, uh, now, really could never have seen that unless the lights were on, I, I think. But, any other questions? Um, we're going to have more time in Zechariah. So if you do have questions or things like that, just hold them, write them down. We will have more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and what it means. We're grateful for the encouragement that we have in Christ. And, and time and time again, every time we go to the word, we continue to find uh, you pointing our attention to Jesus. And the author and finisher of our faith, the, the first and the last, the one who has the keys to death and Hades. Every time our attention is pointed toward him. Um, so we just pause to acknowledge that he is king over our lives, that you have a say over everything that we do, not just a say, command over everything that we do and think and the ways that we act and all that we have. It's all yours. So you give, you take away. Everything we have is submitted to you. Um, nothing that we have is ours to own, but we are only stewards. So we entrust all of these things to you because we recognize that you are king and we are not. You are God and we are not. You are creator, we are creature. So Father, we pray that you would continue to humble us as people and under your sovereign hand that we may accomplish the purpose that you've put us here to accomplish, that we may be your witnesses in this community, that we may carry about our daily lives knowing that we are bringing with us your temple as we go. Tell the good news to people around us. What a tremendous responsibility and, and honor and privilege, one that both brings us joy and fear as we do that. So I pray that you would continue to help us to stay humble as we do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.